friends and colleagues, and welcome to episode 34 of Dermosphere, the podcast by dermatologists, for dermatologists, and for the dermatologically curious. I am one of your hosts. My name is Luke Johnson. I'm a pediatric dermatologist and general dermatologist with the University of Utah. And joining me on the line is my good friend and colleague... This is Michelle Tarbox. I am a dermatologist and dermatopathologist at Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in beautiful, sunny Lubbock, Texas. Every two weeks, we try to bring some of the latest dermatology research directly to your ears to make life a little bit easier for you and hopefully a little bit better for your patients. And we've got a spicy one today. We're going to talk about Barbie dolls. We're going to talk about fish pedicures and some other stuff, too. <laughs> Barbies and fish pedicures. I mean, where could you go wrong? I'm with hooked. This? Get it? <laughs> and we girls can do anything like Barbie. So um, we're going to start off with this article, doll number 135 with vitiligo. Are alopecia and vitiligo Barbie worth the hype? And so this is out of pediatric dermatology in the arts, humanities, and contemporary social issues in pediatric dermatology section by author Syed Fazal Hussain Shah, who is a BA. Um, so that's the degree Bachelor of Arts, Faculty of Medicine at University of Cambridge in the UK. And so the abstract kind of indicates, of course, that the toy manufacturer Mattel has released this year a new line of diverse Barbie dolls, which includes dolls with alopecia and vitiligo. I took a, a look at the line and it also includes dolls. One has a prosthetic leg. Um, there's a doll that has a wheelchair. There's um, some gender nonconforming dolls. So they're trying to increase the diversity and representation in the toy box. It's called the Fashionista line. The Fashionista line, yes. Um, in 2016, they also released a line of um, dolls that had different body types. So that was where Curvy Barbie came into the equation. And she enters into the discussion later on in the paper. So um, the dolls have been widely celebrated with media and um, within the dermatologic community, also proposing that these dolls could provide some benefits for the uh, effect of skin conditions on self-esteem or social exclusion that can be suffered by children with similar dermatoses. And we know that, you know, representation matters as does having comfort with your own body that you live in every single day. And I think that's one of the reasons that the Camp Dermadillo and different kinds of AAD-based summer camps for children who have skin diseases can be so transformative for those children is that they finally get to be in a place where they feel like they can just be themselves because no one's judging them based off of the condition of their skin. Um, the author of this article is a little concerned, however, that the reality may be different. Um, so they're presenting the existing research on the impact of diverse dolls in children's play and psychology to argue that the dolls' proposed benefits for children with alopecia and vitiligo might not materialize and that they could potentially prove more harmful than beneficial, and that's based off of different studies that they're going to cite. So originally, of course, Barbie would be kind of hallmarked by long legs, blonde hair, and flawless skin. Um, and... This, of course, is not really in keeping with the sort of multi-dimensional view of beauty that um, people are starting to embrace. And I think that it is a good thing that our definition of what is beautiful is starting to become more inclusive. The new line of the Fashionista Barbie dolls, um, released earlier this year, had been dubbed the most diverse line and, developed, and was developed alongside with a dermatologist and boasted four body types, 34 skin tones, 94 hairstyles, and the vitiligo and alopecia totalis Barbies. And it wasn't and, just Barbie. I saw that Ken got some treatment as well. So there's yeah. kind of like a metrosexual Ken and a there's surfer a Ken dude with long Ken. Hair, yeah. 
Yeah, some some gender non-conforming things and, um, you know, different types of hair colors and things like that. So there, there was hope that these dolls would have potential benefit to children with similar dermatoses. And some dermatologists have recommended the dolls to their younger patients. Um, this Arthur is concerned about the effects of children uh, on children's self-esteem and stigmatization um, in the real world. And so they want to look at the realistic view uh, based off of current research. So the psychological consequences of derm diseases um, are something that it's a problem that we're starting to pay more attention to. Uh, there is mounting evidence that children are affected by social and emotional sequelae from visible dermatoses. And children with alopecia areata do have higher rates of psychiatric comorbidity and a lower quality of life compared to healthy controls, um, partially because, you know, sometimes children exclude other children who look different in any way. And they're also concerned about self-perception being the most negatively influenced domain. So about 40% of youngsters with vitiligo also report negative childhood experiences related to their skin condition, especially teasing and staring, and that enhances those shameful emotions and negative self-image. These effects can live with the child for a long time, and it can actually affect their quality of life as an adult. And so, you know, we definitely don't want to ignore the consequences of our, our visible dermatologists, dermat dermatoses on the pediatric population. So one of the solutions has been to propose diversity in the toy box to address the psychosocial issues in children. And diverse dolls have been promoted for a long time. Um, so he cites a, a study that actually stems back to the 40s by authors Clark and Clark, who are actually married to each other. And they were civil rights um, activists who were um, both psychologists. And they conducted research uh, with children to look at doll preference and self-identification. And they were able to find that black children in those studies described greater preference and positive attributes to white dolls over black dolls, and that that disparity was enhanced in segregated school districts. And that research was actually very important in the Brown versus the Board of Education lawsuit that went forward, forward in 1954 um, and was cited to show some of the damages that was done to children by having segregated school systems. Yeah, that's kind of haunting. So black children preferred the white dolls and aside the more positive attributes in the black dolls. Yes, so that was a, a problem that was identified by those researchers. They also um, were concerned that black children's self-esteem was thought to be damaged by internalized social stigma, um, which led to demands there for racial diversity in children's education and play materials. So inclusion of diverse toys in children's classrooms is becoming more normal, and I think that is a good thing um, to help foster greater self-esteem in children represented by those toys, and also greater appreciation of multiculturalism in their peers. So this parallel logic has been used to develop develop and alopecia Barbie by offering them toys that resemble more the, the children playing with them. Uh, so these can be useful for challenging just whiteness as the norm or as the default for beautiful or acceptable within the toy box. But um, the data doesn't necessarily show a direct connection to inclusive dolls and enhanced self-esteem. There's been some concern that um, the original study uh, with the Clark Stahl studies, as well as um, some further studies didn't specifically look at self-esteem. They really looked specifically at questions about the dolls in, in particular. So the, the children would be asked, which doll is prettier doll? Which doll is um, nicer? Which doll is more likely to be in trouble? And then they would answer based off of their life experiences. And there have been um, some papers that have found that playing with uh, dolls, for example, in Asian children, that playing with Asian dolls helped to reduce Taiwanese children's anti-Asian doll preferences, um, but they also note that racial preference doesn't necessarily relate to self-concept. 
and they are worried about that lack of evidence and adequate research um, kind of not necessarily supporting the idea of the inclusivity making a big difference. The other concern the, re the this author brings forward is that Barbie's history is also kind of fraught with trouble because of the relatively um, abnormal body proportions that the doll has in comparison with a, a real human being. Um, relatively and, abnormal. Yeah. I think they point out that if she was like a real person, she couldn't even walk due to the size of her hips yes, or something. She couldn't walk or stand. And honestly, I, I saw another um, study that actually tried to put Barbie to scale and she would have to be seven feet tall to be able to survive at all. And she'd have to carry her kidneys around in a bag. So there's like not a lot. Of course, it could be a beautifully accessorized bag. Um, I'm but, sure it would be. Yeah. Rhinestones. Right? Um, so they're worried about, you know, Barbie as a role model of femininity and attractiveness with um, documentation that exposure to Barbie has been shown to promote internalization of thinness as the ideal, body dissatisfaction, and also reduced eating behavior in young girls. So that's kind of a concern that um, this author brings forward. And yeah, then that's he talks scary. About, I mean, that yeah. makes me not want to buy Barbie dolls for my daughter, who's you know, currently two years old. Well, and I know in 2016, Mattel tried to address this by releasing the fashionista line with the original tall, petite, and curvy body types. But the curvy Barbie was actually commonly identified by children as the doll they didn't want to play with. And the larger size was cited for the main reason. Interestingly, the children also commonly selected the curvy Barbie as being not pretty and having no friends and described her um, with negative words such as fat or chubby, even indicating that they didn't like her hair even though all of the dolls had identical hairstyles. So there was a lot of superimposed negativity on the doll that was a little bit different. And there have been similar um, types of experiments and with inclusivity, including dolls that represented children with Down syndrome. And the researchers were concerned that diverse toys actually promoted recreation and perpetuation of existing societal stigma, which could potentially actually negatively impact children um, suffering from the conditions of vitiligo or alopecia. And so instead of fostering an appreciation of the difference, they could actually become agents for enacting societal stigma in the dollhouse. And I read a couple of other um, articles kind of parallel to this one about how it was more common for the doll that was different, the one that was designed to be inclusive, to be identified as like the, the villain in the story that the children were playing out, um, which is obviously not what we would want to have happen in this circumstance. Um, they even point out that the diverse dolls might not be welcomed by the children that they represent and that children belonging to the marginalized group um, might actually favor the dolls that, that look more idealized in whatever their societal norm of believing that would be. Um, specifically, again, they went back to talking about the, the doll that was the curvy Barbie and that um, having play with the curvy Barbie doll actually made the anxiety about body size more um, significant in children that were playing with them without context. Um, so they're worried right. that... They hypothesized that they, children could see this curvy Barbie as a feared future self. Yes, I thought that that, that was an interestingly written sentence. And, you know, I understand the concern. Well, especially if you put the doll next to the other dolls, the way that we have sort of trained our eyes and minds to think about dolls, if you look at like Bratz dolls and other things, these out of proportion figures that are not really compatible with life um, can be problematic. Now, the author does then point to a different line of diverse dolls called Persona dolls. And I looked these up and these look more kind of like a, a fabric doll. They're not really um, in sort of bizarre plastic 
proportions the way Barbie can be. And these dolls are actually used with teachers who are trained in how to use them to help increase empathy for different populations in children. And so um, my parents were um, both teachers. My mom was a special education teacher. And so I know she actually used these dolls. And basically, the dolls all have names and personalities that you explain to the children before you play. And then you kind of guide them through um, helping to understand the way the different dolls might experience different circumstances as characters. And so the author then sort of indicates that potentially supervised educational activity with vitiligo or alopecia representative toys could be beneficial, but just kind of throwing the um, dolls out there with those signifiers might potentially not be as helpful. Uh, there's also a, little, a nice little discussion about how, you know, I, I began this discussion with we girls can do anything like Barbie. Um, so that is the slogan for Barbie who has in some circles been thought to be sort of a um, icon for femininity and feminism because when she entered the market, she had lots of careers. So it wasn't just a doll that taught you how to be a mommy and how to change a diaper. It was a doll that, you know, she could be a pilot or she could be a, a doctor. Um, but they actually did not find that Dr. Barbie conveyed um, benefit on young girls' career aspirations compared to other fashion Barbies or even Mrs. Potato Head. Um, so the, you know, I thought that was a nice inclusion there. So the, the kind of white coat didn't really help to overcome the other attributes that were ascribed to Barbie. And they did also interestingly point out that the title, and I looked this up of the recent Dr. Barbie was actually baby doctor, not p pediatrician. I'm not sure why that choice was made, but it was kind of interesting. Um, of course, the other problem people complain about with the Barbie dolls and fashion dolls in general is that they tend to have relatively significant makeup on. They have very, um, kind of hyper-stylized clothing and, you know, there's a sort of aesthetic to it that is not achievable for humans at all, but definitely not for most people. I think that um, the media portrayal of these as, you know, a kind of curative agent for self-esteem issues connected to those problems is probably a little too en enthusiastic and optimistic, but I do like the author's suggestion that potentially structured play could help um, along with maybe guided um, discussions by somebody who's been trained to do those things. So, so that's what seemed to work for the persona dolls, he points yeah. out. It's that there were specific teachers trained on how to teach kids about them, and that's what helped. So it's not just throwing the dolls in the toy box. It has to include this other component as well. Yeah, so that the doll that's different isn't automatically identified as the outsider or the the bad doll or whatever. I like this article because, first of all, I was like, what? A journal article in the dermatology literature about Barbie? <laughs> I've got to check that out. Um, and then, really, this article says, you know, this seems like a good idea and it seems like it makes sense, but let's look at the research which is a good thing to do, you know, in, in all aspects of medicine, really. That's one reason why we do experiments. And there's this not that much research was one of his conclusions as well. Mm -hmm. So there's been some research that says, oh, maybe we're not going to have a good outcome or maybe we're going to have a bad outcome. But he also just points out that there just hasn't been a lot of research in dolls and people's self-esteem and so on. So he sort of ends up saying we need more research. We can't just say, hey, huzzah for Mattel, look what they did. And I think that's probably the take-home point for dermatologists taking care of kids with this is uh, you can mention it to parents, but I wouldn't just say, hey, this will probably help check out this doll. Yeah, and I mean, I also, in my research for this discussion, 
watched several videos of children being introduced to the dolls that had the distinct conversations and the distinct conditions. And in general, the individual responses of the children suffering from the condition seemed to be positive, but I know those are the ones that were kind of selected to be shown. So you don't know if there's any selection bias there. Um, but I thought it raised some interesting questions and perhaps paved the way for some future research. So from Barbies to fish. So, I mean, natural connection, right? <laughs> this next article is called Fish Pedicure, Review of Its Current Dermatology Applications. This is out of a journal called Curious, C-U-R-E-U-S. And the oh, authors what? include Terry Shi and Amor Kashimon. And these folks are out of UCLA, uh, San Antonio, Orlando, and um, the New York SUNY Downstate Medical Center. Yes? Yes. So... It talks about what is known as ichthyotherapy. So in ichthyotherapy, the patient puts at least a portion of their body in a pool of water and a bunch of little fish come and eat the dead skin off of that part of their body. Okay. It's pretty interesting. I have a mosquito in my office, so I'm trying to kill it, so I'm going to mute myself. <laughs> Maybe you should use a fish. <laughs> So this ichthyotherapy approach is of most interest in psoriasis and in other countries. It seems to not be available in the U.S., um, but you certainly might have patients, especially in the post-coronavirus era, who might travel to have something like this done. So this originated in Turkey at a place called the Kangal Spring, if I'm pronouncing that right, K-A-N-G-A-L, Kangal Spring. And local legend reports that the beneficial effects were discovered in the early 1900s when a local shepherd soaked his injured feet in the water and discovered that the fish just came and chewed off all the dead skin, I guess. So now this Kangal Spring offers 21-day courses for psoriasis treatments. Ichthyotherapy is used most often for the feet, and so is sometimes called a fish pedicure. The fish are of a species called um, Gara Rufa, that's like the Latin name, Gara Rufa. Um, but the common name apparently is appropriately Dr. Fish. So if you were worried that AI was going to take your job, look out. The fish are also knocking at the door. And but there's I wonder a... if they're like, if they're, if they're feminized and wearing lipstick like Dr. Barbie or not, you know. Some of I mean, them they're in, they're in spas. Yeah, they could, you know, they could be. Little They've ingested nail polish, I'm sure of this. <laughs> so there's a nice picture in the book of uh, somebody's feet in uh, water undergoing a fish pedicure or ichthyotherapy and there's like 50 of these little gray suckers each about two inches long just sort of chowing down on psoriatic scale or whatever is on that person's foot uh, so these doctor fish are omnivorous they can eat dead human skin when their normal food supplies are unavailable so one of the approaches if you have a fish pedicure spa is to like feed the fish very sparingly so they'll be hungry and want to eat the dead skin that's on your patients so that's the idea behind ichthyotherapy it sounds a little weird but you know just like with the barbie dolls just because of it sounds good or bad we should actually look at some research to figure it out Unfortunately, kind of like the last one, there's just not a lot of research. The evidence is scarce. There was a 2000 study on Kangal Spring in that spot in particular, which showed improvement in psoriasis over 21 days from a passy 9 to 0. But there were some problems with the study. 87 patients began the study and only 14 finished, hmm. with no real explanation as to the dropout. And there is also some thought that other aspects of this particular spring 
are responsible for at least some of the benefits, like mm -hmm. the fact that it's pretty warm or that there's, you know, a particular makeup of minerals in there. And the authors of this study point out a couple other terms in addition to ichthyotherapy. There's balneotherapy, which is treatment with seawater, and there's thalassotherapy, which is treatment with mineral water. So perhaps the benefits, if there are some, to your psoriasis by hanging out in Kangal Spring are because of the thalassotherapy, the mineral water aspect, and not necessarily from the fish that are eating the dead scale. And then there was one other study, a 2006 study from Austria that combined ichthyotherapy with PUVA for psoriasis, and it hmm. showed benefit. So 90% of patients achieved at least PASI 50, and 46% achieved PASI 75. Um, that's amount of improvement in their psoriasis, 75% or 50%. But there was no PUVA-only group. There was no placebo group. So it's tough to sort out if this was really just the fish, if this was just the PUVA, if it was a combination, etc. And in both studies, the patients were fully immersed for hours. So that That's might... a long time. Right. You got to be motivated and you got to really be a believer, I feel, to, to go ahead and do that. And if you have to really be a believer to do it in the first place, then there's probably some selection bias as well. And it might not reflect how people in real life go about having these fish treatments. They do point out something that I thought was interesting, that the mechanism of improvement may involve something called the reverse Kebner phenomenon, which I'll admit I didn't know existed. So this like is probably bellworthy. Oh, yeah. And it's and this would be different than the Renbach phenomenon, which is Kebner spelled backwards, and it's where the existence of one condition kind of removes the existence of another condition. So people who have psoriasis and alopecia areata don't have alopecia areata where they have the psoriasis. Interesting. I did yeah. not know that. That is Renbach, so Kebner spelled backwards. Crazy. So the reverse Kebner phenomenon is what occurs when lesions resolve after a trauma. So if you have a psoriatic plaque, and it gets traumatized, apparently sometimes that makes it go away. And maybe it gets traumatized by a bunch of little fish chewing on it. <laughs> I've heard stranger things. I mean. They also point out that if the fish chew away all the scale, it might facilitate ultraviolet penetration, which perhaps is the reason why they decided to combine it with puva, but also just walking around outside, especially somewhere sunny like Turkey, um, maybe does a better job if you've had the fish treatment. Adverse effects. So infection is the major concern. There are four case reports in literature of cutaneous infection that occurred after ichthyotherapy and was thought to be due to the ichthyotherapy. One case of MSSA, one case of MRSA, one case of an infection with Aeromonas, and one with Mycobacterium marinum, the classic fish tank granuloma. All patients recovered with antibiotics, sounded like they were all treated as outpatients. Wasn't really that big of a deal, but still, you can't like sterilize the fish tank because they <laughs> kill all the fish. Um, yeah. The authors point out that we do use medical maggot therapy where you can sort of raise the maggots in some kind of sterile condition and then use them to debride tissue. But something like that doesn't particularly seem possible for, you know, fish in this number. And then, you know, having to kill all the fish after a single treatment with a single patient would probably make it financially unfeasible. They also point out that the fish can suffer as well. So especially when they're transported, it sounds like they're often transported in kind of unsanitary, dangerous conditions where they can spread infection among themselves. So there are reports of batches of fish that all died or that had to be killed due to spreading infections. And they also point out that over-harvesting of these fish, presumably for this region, in Turkey has led 
Turkey to apply a protected status to the fish. So most most fish spas in other countries get their doctor fish from other countries, not from Turkey. That's the story. I thought that it was just interesting that this is out there, that you might have some patients talk about it or find out about it online or even have it done, and it would be helpful to know what it is. I like learning about the reverse Kebner phenomenon, and I also like just really non-standard approaches to try to treat things because sometimes they work. Have you ever had a fish pedicure done? I have not. I almost got one done. I was like sitting there waiting for it. Some of my girlfriends got it done, and I was like, I'm too grossed by out this, grossed out by this to do it. Um, so, but it is interesting, and they're little teeny tiny fish. The people that I was with said it tickles a little bit, but it doesn't really hurt. Um, some of the other articles about this treatment also indicated that they can ca- carry potentially other organisms, even like Vibrio vulnificus and stuff. So there's, you know, some potential for infection. Um, but so where were you when therapy. you? didn't have a fish pedicure done. <laughs> it was just a mall. Like, you know how they used in to the have US? Mall? In the US, yeah. No, I didn't think I know. they were available there. So this no, is... they've had, yeah. They've, they used to have them in the mall-like areas. I think it may have been in Las Vegas. Of course, you know, is it really legal if it happened in Las Vegas or were they just not paying enough attention? Who knows? Fair. I know. So, pretty interesting. So, back to alopecia areata, you know, we're going to pull a whip my hair back and forth situation and go back to alopecia areata. Hey, the fish don't have hair. I know, right? Unless they're like mermaids or something. Um, so we're going to talk about this article here published in the JAD, which is the efficacy of antihistamines in combination with topical corticosteroids and superficial cryotherapy for the treatment of alopecia areata, a retrospective cohort study. And this is by authors Young Bin Lee and Woon Su Lee. Um, notably, Dr. Woon Su Lee was one of the first people that published about using the superficial cryotherapy in a controlled trial um, in 2017 in the Annals of Dermatology. And in that trial, they described sort of their methodology for how they actually used cryotherapy. And basically, they would use superficial cryotherapy on alopecia areata patches every two weeks um, using liquid nitrogen spray three to four times on each alopecia areata patch for two to three seconds per application. So it's a pretty light application of cryotherapy that's done. Um, It was first uh, introduced in the literature in 1986 by Huang and Li et al. So those were some different articles that kind of talked about this. These researchers are... Do you remember what the mechanism is supposed to be? They actually still don't completely understand that. There's a thought that it might change the inflammatory milieu sort of similar to what you're going for with DPCP application, where you're basically trying to change the pattern of inflammation away from the cytotoxic T-cells and the destruction of the hair follicles that are occurring in alopecia areata, Um, the sort of mimicking of the pattern of inflammation we see with vitiligo and turning it into a different kind of a reactive inflammation instead. So I've always... You know, I've always kind of described that as the look over here way of treating alopecia areata where you're just trying to distract the angry inflammatory cells. Um, So these researchers are out of the Wonju Republic of Korea. And so this is a letter to the editor discussing um, another treatment for alopecia areata. They've noted, of course, that AA has improved after topical DPCP, which is diphenylcyclopropanone, sorry, diphenylcyclopropanone, DPCP, immunotherapy, um, and that has been used in conjunction with antihistamines previously. So here they wanted to review the role of adjuvant antihistamines in combination with topical corticosteroids and superficial cryotherapy for alopecia areata. So this was a retrospective chart review of patients who had alopecia areata 
in their hospital from February 2012 to November 2018. And in this area, they administer the treatment protocol of topical corticosteroids and the superficial cryotherapy. Um, in this particular population at four to eight week intervals for patients with mild to moderate alopecia areata who aren't candidates for topical DPCP immunotherapy or systemic corticosteroids. And the subjects were divided into two groups. So those who were on antihistamines and those who were not on antihistamines. They didn't consider whether the antihistamines were being used intentionally to treat alopecia areata or for some other indication. And the antihistamine, antihistamines that were used were fexofenadine, which is Allegra here in the US, and an antihistamine called abastine, which is uh, trade named Kestine and is not approved in the US. It's available, however, in Korea. They had 24 patients who were treated with the adjuvant antihistamine in combination with the topical corticosteroids and the superficial cryotherapy, compared with 124 patients who were not treated with antihistamines but did receive the topical corticosteroids and the superficial cryotherapy. They didn't have any real significant differences in the two populations in sex, disease duration, or episode type. Um, the initial SALT score, which is the severity of alopecia tool score, History of atopy and total follow-up period were also the same. The group treated with adjuvant antihistamines, um, they had usually an, a duration of antihistamine use within the AA treatment period of 6.29 months for, uh, for most of the people, so a little bit over half of the year that they were treated. And their cumulative incidence analysis showed that there was a significant difference in major hair regrowth um, with positive effects seeming to emerge with the adjuvant treatment uh, with the antihistamine. They also noted that during the observation period, there weren't any instances of side effects that required discontinuation of the antihistamines amongst patients who were treated with those medicines. They hypothesized that because mast cells and eosinophils around hair follicles have been noted in the histopathology of alopecia areata, and because a subset of alopecia areata shares some aspects of atopic dermatitis, antihistamines might be suggested for the treatment of alopecia areata. Besides the fact that they are able to reduce inflammation and irritation caused by DPCP, some studies on fexofenadine and abastine have shown decreased expression of cytokines or substance P or reduced T cell infiltration around hair, cell, hair follicles histologically in experimental settings. Um, so I thought that that was very interesting. They noted also that antihistamine treatment specifically or TH17, TH1, TH2 axis regulation has been evaluated in various autoimmune diseases, but there's not really a well-designed comparative trial yet. And so they kind of suggest that as the next step to see if these antihistamines may be able either through their action as intrinsic histamine H1 receptor antagonists um, or as anti-inflammatories to benefit hair regrowth. Um, they also point out, of course, that this is a retrospective single center study. And so, you, you know, generalizability may not be as broad as we would like for it to be for something like this. Um, it's a relatively harmless addition to most therapeutic regimens. There was a paper, I think two years ago, maybe three, where they actually used topical um, cetirizine to, to treat uh, androgenetic alopecia with some favorable effects. And you can often see um, excess mast cells in the sorry, sort of perifollicular chronic inflammation that can occur um, with androgenetic alopecia as well. So I thought this was very interesting. And, you know, it's a low-cost, low-risk intervention, so reasonable to consider. So they had a bunch of people who were all treated with superficial cryotherapy and topical steroids, and some small percentage of them also were on antihistamines for unclear reasons, mm -hmm. and those people got better. Yes. So by first, I agree, antihistamines are easy, they're safe, they're cheap, um, so I think it makes a lot of sense to try them if there's some data, but I was kind of interested in why 
whoever prescribed these people antihistamines did so. Right. It would were be interesting they, to know. Were they just on antihistamines because they also had seasonal allergies or something? Or was this like some providers at their institution thought they worked and so prescribed them for people with alopecia areata or did some people look at the pathology maybe and if they saw a bunch of mast cells did they think it was a good idea or were there some people who said their scalp was itchy and they got the antihistamines it'd be kind of cool to see if we could figure out if there was like a subpopulation of people with alopecia areata who would really be the ones to benefit from it so I feel like those are some fun directions we can go on next you know you could make a study where you biopsy everybody and if you see x number of mast cells you give those people antihistamines and some of them not and see what happens. Yeah, How often do you see mast cells on path with alopecia areata? I mean, you see, you know, a mixture of inflammatory cells. You definitely can see eosinophils. It's actually one of the ways you can differentiate syphilitic alopecia from alopecia areata. So syphilitic alopecia can be very histologically similar to alopecia areata, but alopecia areata is more likely to have eosinophils in the inflammatory infiltrate than syphilis is. So mm. kind of interesting. So you see mast cells a fair amount of the time yeah. as well. I'm in my in my experience you see mast cells in both alopecia areata and in androgenetic alopecia. So I think that the mast cells do have some role in hair fall in both of those conditions. Maybe we should treat uh, people with androgenetic alopecia with antihistamines. I, I've even tried for some of my patients with alopecia a little bit of Montelukast, um, singular. You do have to be careful, though. There is a black box warning on that now for psychiatric comorbidities uh, because there have some been some patients who have had episodes of psychosis. So that is not something to choose to give your crazy hair loss patients. Don't use that medicine. You could probably do some kind of big data study where you would find people who are just on antihistamines for other reasons and see if they have a lower percentage of people with androgenetic alopecia or something that would be interesting all right we digress um let's talk about eczema in old people and that dupilumab works go figure <laughs> it just works for eczema but this in particular i thought was interesting so the tar the title of the article is the role of dupilumab in the management of idiopathic chronic eczematous eruption of aging and the authors include nita Shariari and Mona Shariari and Bruce Strober. And they're out of University of Connecticut and Yale. So idiopathic chronic eczematous eruption of aging, kind of a mouthful, mm -hmm. the abbreviated CEEA. And this occurs in people exclusively over age 50, kind of by definition. And one reason this article caught my eye is that because is because I feel that I have heard of this entity a few times in the past, but it's never been very well defined for me. I think I've heard it called pyritic dermatitis of the elderly, and I think I've heard it called pyritis of senescence, mm -hmm. assuming that all of these are referring to the same entity. So I liked that this article finally kind of gave me a definition of it, and then also mentioned this therapy, dupilumab, that seemed to help for it. So they say that the aging immune system sometimes, I guess, or maybe all the time, switches to be Th2 predominant. And as we know, Th2 cytokines are thought to be the predominant runs that are involved in atopic dermatitis. So this is people who are very itchy. It's the trunk and the extremities. It spares the face. They usually have no history of atopic dermatitis before, and pathology so shows spongiotic dermatitis, sort of standard atopic dermatitis-looking stuff. So why would you suddenly get atopic dermatitis when you're 70 years old? 
Well, maybe because your aging immune system has switched to TH2, and we're not going to call it atopic dermatitis, at least right now. We're going to call it idiopathic chronic eczematous eruption of aging. So this was a small case series. It was 15 patients. They all had to be age 65 or over with this condition. The mean age was 75. Two-thirds of them were women. And all of them had failed topicals. And 73% of them had also failed systemic immunosuppressants. So these were people who were itchy enough that they wanted an immunosuppressant to control their condition. And a lot of them didn't even respond on that. But all of them, all 15, responded to dupilumab. They responded fairly quickly. 60% of them responded in two to four weeks, and 40% of them responded in four to eight weeks. And in my experience, that just seems to be about the length of time that dupilumab takes to really kick in. I usually tell patients they usually get benefits after a few weeks, like three to four weeks, they start to notice a difference. Uh, they notice that the mean IGA, Investigator's Global Assessment, decreased from 3.73 to 0.73. That's good in the in the positive direction and the mean body surface area affected decreased from 20 percent to three percent they had a couple patients with conjunctivitis which we know is a known side effect of dupilumab and in fact seems to be the most common one uh occurring in about 13 percent of people so now i have a better definition for this idiopathic chronic eczematous eruptive <laughs> aging and unsurprisingly to me Dupilumab works for it because it's probably atopic dermatitis wearing a different hat when the like funny glasses and a mustache or something, but it's still probably atopic dermatitis. It reminded me of the TikTok where teens are actually using the whole pandemic thing as an excuse to buy alcohol because they're getting these silicon masks that look like an old person's face and oh. they're covering themselves over the mask and then they're going and buying alcohol and recording it on TikTok. So yeah, it's basically Genius. the it's the eczema version of that. <laughs> so Dupilumab, I mean, it seems to be a great medicine. It works well for atopic dermatitis and it works for other stuff like maybe this. We had an episode where we talked about its use in hand dermatitis. In episode 29, we discussed an article where it worked in people with bolus pemphigoid. So I, and it seems to be very safe. It's very expensive. Hopefully it will come down in price after some more IL-4 and IL-13 blockers are also on the market. And I know that they're working on some that have less incidence of conjunctivitis as well. So that might even make them easier to use um, based off of that one side effect. But yeah, great, great um, article. I hope that we can get it covered for some patients that could really benefit from it since it is such a relatively safe medication. Pretty cool. Well, from something obnoxious and not that dangerous treated with a medication that's not that dangerous, we're going to talk about something really bad and dangerous that's treated with a medication that can also be really bad and dangerous, um, but is safer used topically. So we're going to talk now. You are now. the queen of segues, Michelle. Uh, thank you. You know, I, mean, I usually just say, I'm going to talk about something else now, but you, make, you really make the effort. You go the extra mile. It's a, it's a gift. What can I say? Um, so I've got this article here, Assessment of Outcomes of Calciflaxis Lesions Treated with Intralesional Sodium Thiosulfate by authors Colleen K. Gable, who is a Bachelor of Science, and Dr. Daniela Krasinski, MD, PhD, sorry, MD, MPH, my bad. Um, so Gable is a fun name too, and German Gabel means fork. I don't know if that person is German or not, but that's fun. So sodium thiosulfate is a very interesting medication. It is actually one of the two medications used to treat acute cyanide poisoning and is used intravenously for that along with sodium nitrate. nitrate. But it has some interesting side effects when given IV. So it can cause agitation, hallucination or mental changes, muscle cramps, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, joint pain, and it can also 
more dangerously cause hypernatremia and metabolic acidosis. Um, so it's a medication that's not without risk to use systemically, but of course, calciphylaxis, also known as calcific uremic arteriopathy, also a pretty dangerous condition. Um, there's really not an approved therapy for this condition, um, so some people have treated it with IV sodium thiosulfate. We'll go over some of the other therapeutics that have been used as well later on in the article. Um, they point out that IL sodium thiosulfate hasn't really been well studied as a treatment for calciphylaxis, and so they undertook a retrospective study to look at intralesional use of sodium thiosulfate as a potentially effective therapeutic for calciphylaxis. And they found that it was potentially therapeutic with few adverse effects. So as we said, IV sodium thiosulfate has also been used for this condition, but it has its limitations. So they undertook this review uh, at MassGen, and the, the researchers were out of Boston, Massachusetts and New Brunswick, New Jersey. They found in this Partners Research Patient Data Registry, or RPDR, for those in the know, 167 patients with calciphylaxis, 145 of which had the diagnosis confirmed by a dermatologist or a nephrologist with expertise in calciphylaxis. And then on further review, they were able to find 33 patients that had been treated with intralesional sodium thiosulfate with a total of 104 unique injected lesions. The individuals were followed for one year and they were categorized that they were categorized into different response groups. So they had clinical improvement with a decrease in size and duration erythema or purpura, which was categorized as a partial response. They had also resolution of activity or resolution of purpura, which is categorized as a complete response and healing or closing of the ulcers with a quiescent wound. They looked at the cumulative risk through a Kaplan-Meier analysis, which is a nice analysis. It allows you to incorporate more data points with people who fall out at different points of the kind of observation period and still incorporate all the data, data prior to them falling out. That's a useful thing to use for a study where people either drop out or, as it can be the case with calciphylaxis, unfortunately die from the condition. Um, so they assessed outcomes for the intralesional sodium thiosulfate alone versus intralesional plus intravenous sodium thiosulfate. They found that 93% of the lesions with a partial response um, improved within a median of 14 days. With this combination treatment, 85% had a complete response resolution of activity within 41 days, and 76.4 healed with that quiescent wound categorization within 222 days. They found that there was no difference in outcomes between the patients who had both intravenous and intralesional therapy versus intralesional therapy alone. However, they very fairly point out that the patients for whom the combination therapy was selected, so intravenous and intralesional, were more complicated patients. So the number of lesions per patient and the number of injections until clinical improvement were higher in those that received dual therapy. They found that of the 327 injections that were performed, only 2% were discontinued due, due to pain, so it was found to be well-tolerated, and no other adverse effects were reported specifically with the intralesional sodium thiosulfate, so they felt that this would be a safe and potential helpful treatment for patients with calciphylaxis. Of course, it's a retrospective study. It's hard to retrospectively define outcomes and to differentiate between if the lesion is resolving because it was already starting to resolve versus if the intralesional sodium thiosulfate made a huge difference for the patient. They also point out that there's the potential for observation bias or clinical assessment and selection bias with the treatment um, with the intralesional sodium thiosulfate. And 
I think their table inclusion in the back of the article was very fair as well to clarify that the group that did have the com combination therapy was more likely to be inpatient. Those people were more likely to have more proximal disease and they were more likely to have more severe comorbidities. So I think that it is potentially a useful treatment for patients who are suitable for outpatient therapy and who are a little bit less complex. Um, have you ever used this particular medication, Luke? haven't used it intralesionally, but we've discovered that there seems to be some utility for it in calcinosis cutis mm -hmm. if you apply it topically. Yes. So you can get it compounded, at least here at one of the compounding pharmacies we use. It's $40 for a 45-gram tube, and uh, it's a lot easier than cutting it out. I, I agree. Um, they also talked about the other therapeutics that could be used as an adjuvant. Um, those other therapeutics, of course, included hyperbaric oxygen, uh, vitamin K replacement, Cevelomir, which is a phosphate binding drug that was also used in about 60% of patients, and Cinecalcet, which is a type 2 calcinomimetic. And what that does is it binds to the transmembrane region of the calcium sensing receptor, and it makes it more sensitive to calcium. So that means you reduce the serum PTH at lower levels of serum calcium. So a lot of patients who have calciphylaxis have abnormal reg regulation of their parathyroid hormone and calcium balance in phosphate product. So that's a potential use for that. Pentoxyphylline was another adjuvant therapy as were both surgical and bedside debridement. So a little bit of pimpable content there, but I thought it was a yeah, nice article. Yeah, and it's clear that we need more uh, treatments for these people considering the amount of adjuncts that they cite in this study. So intralesional sodium thiosulfate might be a good choice. Um, as you mentioned, calciphylaxis is pretty bad. Like it kills people a fair amount of the time. So I was almost surprised that they were able to follow people for a year to see if their lesions improved. Yeah, they're and part of me also wondered. percent mortality rate. So about 33% passed off. I also wondered if it was injecting just something into the lesion that was helpful. Because <laughs> some time ago, we discussed an article um, where our friend of the show, Chris Syed, injected ILK and also just saline into hydradenitis superativa lesions and found that both groups improved about equally. So maybe just injecting something into these lesions helped them go get better. It's a good question. All right, I'm going to talk about something different. Hey, how do you like that segue? <laughs> Very nice. So this article um, is called Contact Allergy, Emerging Allergens and Public Health Impact. And it is from the International Journal of Environmental Research and Public Health. Um, and it's kind of an update about contact allergens, new ones that we should be aware of and sort of the quirky changes that some of our old standbys have gone through. And this is a long article. It's a long and interesting article. Actually, it was surprisingly interesting, I thought. Um, we're not going to talk about the whole thing today. We're going to come back to this article over the next several episodes, and we're going to hit different categories of contact allergens every time. So this is like the emerging contact allergen moment in the show, and this will be like a mini-series. So we should come up with a theme song. <laughs> oh my god. Emerging contact allergen moment! I love it. So this, uh, as I said, really well written. It's by authors including Wolfgang Uter, Thomas Werfel, Jean-Pierre Le Poitevin, and Ian White. These folks are out of Germany, France, and the UK, and uh, you can guess who's out of where based on their names, probably. <laughs> this is a systematic review from 2018 to 2019 to illuminate some emerging contact allergens. 
and as I mentioned, how some of the standard contact allergens have been evolving in their use and presentation. So when they looked at all of them, there were a couple commonalities that emerged that have frustrated allergic contact dermatitis experts for decades and still continue to frustrate us. One is a lack of information on commercial product composition, and another is a lack of cooperation among manufacturers to provide it. This isn't a blanket statement, of course. There are some manufacturers who are very good about telling you what's in their products and are happy to provide you with that information, um, but they were frustrated by those issues in this case, and they mentioned specifically in the year 2020, glucose monitoring devices and insulin pumps um, were especially difficult to um, get information about the composition because it seems like those have caused some allergic contact dermatitis. They had uh, also a nice little blurb on the factors that lead to allergic contact dermatitis, and there's three factors that they feel are involved. One is how allergenic the substance is. Two is the degree of exposure. So the time, total amount of time you were exposed and the body surface area that was exposed. And then three is individual factors, many of which are kind of unknown or poorly characterized at this point, but they include things like skin barrier problems. So you need, so those three things tell you sort of if you're gonna get sensitized, how allergenic is the substance, to what degree was were you exposed, and what's with you and your skin? <laughs> they say, according to current science, once you become sensitized to something, you're sensitized forever. There's no cure for it. All right, so in this emerging contact allergens moment, we're going to talk about metals, and we'll do fragrances and stuff in future episodes. So nickel. So nickel regulations exist in some European countries, but not in the U.S., but according to the research, nickel regulations seem to work and reduce the rate of nickel sensitization. So if we in the U.S. really care about nickel sensitization as a public health concern, then we should probably start some nickel regulation. Piercings increase the risk of nickel allergy, ranging from piercing ever, but not currently, which has an odds ratio of four. So people who had those piercings were four had a four times greater odds of having nickel allergy. Um, and then the most extreme was, I currently have three or more piercings. And in that case, the odds ratio of a nickel allergy was 5.6. So you can think of that as being 5.6 times more likely to develop a nickel allergy if you have three or more piercings. That's not exactly the definition, but I feel it's close enough. There are some fun recent... So one thing I like about allergic contact dermatitis is that there's just some really fun stories that come from it. <laughs> so there are some recent case reports of nickel allergy from toys, uh -huh. specifically fidget spinners. Oh, I can believe that. From a boyfriend's wristwatch... So a young woman was sitting next to her boyfriend often at the cinema and was in contact with his wristwatch, I guess, and got nickel sensitization from that. Nickel allergy from cosmetics, specifically eyebrow pencils. Interesting. From an oral retainer. So you might remember if you've had braces, after you're done with your braces, they give you this retainer to wear, and then eventually you're like, why am I wearing this? I'm throwing this away. But there was a case report of nickel in that appliance causing mucositis. There is nickel allergic contact dermatitis from pieces of meteorite on a wedding ring. Apparently, hmm. meteorites have nickel. I was thinking of getting a meteorite wedding ring, but I ended up not. So <laughs> now I'm kind of glad about it. From military pins, so like decorative pins that you wear, 
related to your military duty. Those have nickel, and apparently in at least one case, have given people an allergic contact reaction. And then you can get occupational exposures from embroidery needles and from the instruments used in hairdressing, scissors and stuff. So all of those things have recently been reported as causing nickel allergic contact dermatitis. And this is bellworthy, Michelle, if you please. Remember that you can test for nickel content in a substance by using the dimethylglyoxime test. Woo, and what color does it turn? Pink. Pink, very good. Cobalt. So they point out that the relevance of positive cobalt sensitization tests is questionable, but an exposure can come from jewelry and also from leather. I guess cobalt is used in the tanning process. Mm -hmm. They point out some cases of it being caused from shoes or gloves, regardless of their color. And apparently if you work in the hard metal industry or if you are exposed to machine oil, occasionally some of those exposures can result in cobalt sensitization. Chromium. So chromium is found in cement, also in leather. So there are case reports mm -hmm. of chromium allergic contact dermatitis from a tool belt and from the leather coverings over a steering wheel and a gear stick. So think about your car. Does the steering wheel have a leather cover? Does the gear stick have a leather cover? If so, first you have a fancy car and second <laughs> you could be exposed to chromium. They point out that you can get it from tattoo inks. So mm -hmm. there was one Italian study where 90% of the inks they tested had chromium, though in episode 12, we discussed an article mostly about inks in the United States where none of them had chromium. So it seems to vary significantly by country in this case. And there's kind of a dimethylglyoxime test for chromium. Bill, please. And it's called the colorimetric 1,5-diphenylcarboxide spot test. Rolls right off the tongue. Yep. They say it's available for easy detection of hexavalent chromium, though they point out that there are false positive results if you're testing aged chromium, I guess. Wasn't something valent chromium the thing that was in the Julia Roberts movie? Uh, could not tell you. <laughs> Aaron Brockovich? I think it was. Uh, yeah, I haven't seen it. Yeah, hexavalent chromium was like car it's a carcinogen, and they were putting it in the water supply. Movie trivia on point. Anyway, go ahead. A few more metals I'd like to talk about. Palladium can cause granulomas, especially in pierced earlobes. Ever hear of a metal called indium? I have. Oh, well, you're fancier than I. I learned today that it was atomic number 49. It's, it's an element. And there is one report of it causing orofacial granulomatosis from dental crowns. And then aluminum, though, of course, since this um, paper is out of Europe, they pronounce it aluminium. <laughs> it's in some vaccines. So if children develop a deep inflammatory nodule after a vaccine, you might consider checking. Um, apparently, getting the aqueous solution of aluminum chloride hexahydrate is supposed to be better than just testing them against metallic aluminum. And finally, they talk about joint prostheses. And they say that sensitization or allergic contact dermatitis to joint prostheses is a controversial subject. They say that other factors, like the type of the replaced joint and mechanical stress, seem to be more relevant for implant-related complication. Sensitization to metals or other materials seems to rarely play a role and is overestimated. Cool. That is our emerging contact allergen moment Diddy. for today. 
it's a interesting the indium thing it's sometimes used as a as an ally with with gold and it kind of turns gold purple and makes it more workable so a lot of like crafts people that are making sort of um unique looking jewelry might use indium and it's actually called indium because it's spectroscopy has a bright indigo band fun yeah Coolio. All right. So to wrap things up, I have a brief um, commentary on the article we reviewed last podcast discussing diet and acne. And this is titled Diet and Acne Challenges of Translating Nutritional Epidemiologic Research into Clinical Practice. So they sort of echo some of the points in the previous article about the diet and acne that one of the key points that gets hit on multiple times is milk consumption has some thought that it might increase acne because of increasing insulin and increasing insulin-like growth factor one levels. There's also evidence that can induce lipogenesis and proliferation of keratinocytes and sebocytes. Additionally, IGF-1 can stimulate androgen synthesis and can decrease the production of sex hormone binding globulin. So that means you have more androgen and you have less of the sponge of sex hormone binding globulin to sop it up and decrease its activity. So you have more androgens, less sponge. Um, they also point out that if you are drinking milk that is used, uh, that has any kind of hormone use in the raising of the animals, Bovine IGF-1 and androgens may be present and may promote development of acne. Observational studies, including meta-analyses of 14 studies, have associated acne and milk intake. Now, we know that association doesn't prove causation, and it's still uncertain whether milk fat percentage influences the strength of the association. There have been some studies that have indicated that actually skim or low-fat milk is more likely to be problematic as it would contain a higher fraction of the exogenous hormones potentially. Whey protein has also been implicated in the development of acne. Um, whey actually does increase insulinogenesis. So people who take whey supplements for weight gaining, for bodybuilding, that kind of stuff, um, can actually be insulinotropic. And they had a small series of five men that once they discontinued their whey protein supplements, improved their acne. So theoretical possibility. But um, perhaps their whey protein supplements also included wacky testosterone things. That's and so possible, on. depending on where they were buying them from, for sure. Um, so the authors point out that, you know, just de facto removing milk from the diet and milk products may be complicated, especially um, given some of the theoretic nutritional benefits of milk and milk products, especially in growing people. Um, so that's something that, you know, they wanted you to take with a grain of salt, since we're using food metaphors. I think one thing that you can um, kind of just talk to patients about is working about improving their glycemic load in their diets, because additionally, high glycemic load diets have been proposed to increase insulin and insulin-like growth factor one levels could potentially result in greater development of acne. There have been some small observational studies and trials that have supported this. Um, a Cochrane review didn't find sufficient evidence, however, to support a low glycemic load for the management of acne specifically. However, unlike milk products, high glycemic load doesn't necessarily have any significant nutritional or developmental benefits. And actually, there's a lot of other disease processes that we know can be impacted by having a, a diet with a high glycemic load. So I think that it would be reasonable to talk to your patients about thinking about that part of their diet, at least. Um, so the associations, of course, in the article that we presented last week, weren't very like statistically high numbers of change in risk. So the, the odds ratios were generally small, less than 1.2. Uh, so it might not be clinically meaningful to make a big change in diet, like completely eliminating dairy products. But I do have a lot of patients that sometimes will ask, you know, what the options are for what in their diet they could avoid. A lot of people, of course, think it's things like chocolate or things like that. And really, I think it's, it's more likely to be things that cause um, hormone modulation. Like skim milk. 
<laughs> skim milk or excess dairy potentially, but definitely I think it's reasonable to counsel people on avoiding high glycemic index foods because like a lot of junk food a lot of heavily processed things you know though one of my favorite foods that's a high glycemic index food is watermelon that is i think completely fine to continue taking because it's a natural food um but some of the processed things and you know sugary cereals and cokes and things that kids tend to prefer i think it's better to eliminate from most people's diets anyway watermelon flavored jelly beans I mean, you know, I was talking about the plant. I mean, jelly beans is a small indulgence occasionally. Since you brought up jelly beans, they did have one study where they actually looked at um, chocolate versus a calorically similar number of um, jelly beans, which I thought was kind of funny. <laughs> so they and had the people a little... who ate the chocolate had more pimples. Yeah, so I thought that that was kind of. It was only like thirty people. Yeah, it was not a very big study, but it was interesting. So after reading this article and the one we discussed last time. I'm slowly coming around to the idea that diet might play a little tiny role in making people's acne a little bit worse. So uh, I don't think that changing your diet is going to cure your acne, especially if your acne is significant enough that you're coming to a dermatologist for help. Plus, we've got a lot of great treatments for acne anyway that work well and are safe and helpful for other aspects of skin health. But... If people ask, I, uh, I agree. Switching to low glycemic index would just probably be healthier overall, and maybe we'll reduce the number of pimples they have by one or two per month or something like that. Yeah, and might decrease you know, insulin resistance, and in, in young women might help to regulate hormones. You know, When you have young women who have PCOS and things, there's often advice that they avoid high glycemic index diets, so I think that's a reasonable consideration. That's all we got for today. So today we learned that Mattel is producing Barbie dolls with alopecia totalis and with vitiligo, but we don't yet know if they're going to be helpful, harmful, or neutral. We learned about fish pedicures and how it <laughs> can maybe help with psoriasis, but there's not a lot of data and look out for exotic infections. We learned that PO antihistamines might help your alopecia areata patients recover a bit better. We learned that dupilumab seems to work, at least in a small case series, for idiopathic chronic eczematous eruption of aging. We learned that intralesional sodium thiosulfate might be an extra tool in your armamentarium for calciphylaxis. We learned about emerging contact allergens, um, various fun case reports of nickels from boyfriend's wristwatches from meteorite. We learned about chromium and the leather on your steering wheel and indium causing orofacial granulomatosis and we learned that diet might have a little bit of a role in acne after all <laughs> thanks for hanging out with us today if you would like to find links to all of the original articles for this and for every episode we have ever made you can do so on our website dermospherepodcast.com where you can also find those episodes and a bunch of bonus episodes and some other goodies it's also a good way to get in touch with us. If you'd like to drop us a line, you can do so there. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, Dermosphere Podcast. And thanks to Ryan Carlisle, our med student and social media expert who helps us out with those. And thanks also to our institutions. Thanks to the University of Utah Department of Dermatology for supporting the podcast. And thanks to Texas Tech Dermatology for lending us Michelle. And thanks, of course, to you for listening to us. We will see you in two weeks. Woohoo!